Hi, everyone. Pastor Greg here. Welcome to worship at Union Chapel. We're so thrilled that you're here, and thank you for your regular attendance to our online services. It's uh, June 14th, and so we're moving through the summer now and taking one day at a time, one step at a time, trusting that God is with us, and indeed, He is. And we've been talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God wants to cultivate in our lives. We've talked about love and joy and peace. Last week, we talked about patience and goodness and today, uh, gentleness. And today, we want to talk about goodness. It is uh, just a, a simple subject, but so important, intrinsically important to who we are as people and the influence that we have in the world. So I hope it will be meaningful to you. Our text again is from Galatians chapter 5. This is where the Apostle Paul lists these wonderful fruit of the Spirit. I'll begin reading at verse 22 of Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. May God inspire and instruct us through his word. Thanks so much. Uh, there's a Broadway musical entitled Camelot. Some of you are familiar with it. There's an interesting dynamic in this musical involving King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Now follow this sequence. A time comes when the kingdom of Arthur experiences peace. All of the turmoil, all the wars have subsided, and there is an outward appearance that would indicate all is well in Camelot. Arthur, at this point in the musical, sings a song that's entitled, Everything is Perfect in Camelot. But deep underneath, there is a simmering rebellion. For example, Guinevere, Arthur's wife, plays out her affair with Sir Lancelot, part of the story. And also the knights are simmering with rebellion at the imposed goodness of King Arthur. All is well, all is good in the kingdom, everything's perfect. So knights don't have to do what knights do. They're not going to war. They're not doing what they enjoy, what gives them happiness in their lives. And at one point they sing this witty little song, these knights entitled Fie on Goodness or Fooey. Fui on being good. They sing, oh, but to slay a dozen men or burn a little village, anything to laugh again. And it's supposed to be very charming and witty and humorous. Now, of course, here's the problem. The problem is that goodness is not the dry, brittle imposition of expectations and rules which take the joy and laughter out of life. That's not what goodness is. It's not, okay, I'll be good. Meaning, implying, all the fun's over. That's not what goodness is. In fact, you will never hear of a life being ruined by too much goodness. Have you? I've never heard of that. It may be ruined by a false sense of goodness or some legalistic idea of goodness, the imposition of rules and regulations and expectations, but it will never be destroyed by authentic, God-produced, God-cultivated goodness. No, no. So let me, 
uh, start with a definition of goodness. We'll put this on the screen. Goodness is not just to do a good thing. It must have about it something that relates to the essence of character. Goodness is an inner disposition then causing an outward reality. Or to say it another way, goodness is a state of being from which actions emanate. So the quality of goodness has to do with something done because it is good. It is motivated by good. It is, it is uh, encouraged by and impassioned by essential good. Not because it looks good. Not because it'll score points or provide some advantage to you if it, if it behaves in a good way. But because it is intrinsically good. Let me try to illustrate. There's a chapel by the Sea of Galilee, I'm told, which is absolutely beautiful. Very ornate, beautiful. It's said that it was paid for by Benito Mussolini, who was the dictator of Italy during World War II, the compatriot of Hitler. Now, on the surface, you would imagine that someone with a good heart would build such a beautiful place. Think about that. Imagine uh, Hollywood personalities, uh, music stars, rock stars who do benefit concerts for virtually every cause known to man in our culture, but whose personal lives are racked with all kinds of pain and bondage and brokenness and sin. Can we say they are good in any real sense of the word? What about the murderous mobster who pays out of his pocket for the surgery of a crippled child. What do you do with that guy? Is he a good man because he does an isolated good deed? To do a good thing or series of good things, listen, cannot make me good. Can't do it. Uh, one mobster died. His brother, who was also a mobster, went to the Catholic priest and made this offer. If at the funeral of my mobster brother, you will announce to the world that he was a saint, I will give your parish $1 million. Well, this was a dilemma for the priest, and he thought about it for a while until he finally came to the answer, and he agreed with the mobster to do it. And so come the day of the funeral, the priest was giving the eulogy, and he paused and referred to the deceased and said, and compared... And compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> and so, so he accomplished, accomplished the deal. But in a biblical sense, to do one good deed or even a succession of good deeds does not make a person good. And neither can it introduce the fruit of goodness in his life. So I cannot, by all the good I do, change my innermost self. I cannot make myself good by acting good. You're following this now. If, however, there is a change toward goodness in my heart, in my inner self, in my real person, in my character, then sooner or later, that will reach out in my outward expressions, and I will find myself engaging in good activities. So let's begin. Let's take this first point, and this is a familiar outline to you th through this entire series, and here's the first idea. How does goodness relate to the character of God? Goodness in the character of God. Listen to Psalm 34, verse 8. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. Taste and see 
The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. I think too many people see uh, the personality of God, the holiness of God, the purity of God as some kind of sterile uh, force field, you know, that you just, you can't walk into it. It's just, it's too pristine. It's too much. It's too imposing. It's too overwhelming. Uh, but rather, I think we need to see the holiness of God, the completeness of God, the character of God in his warmth and in his delight and in his laughter and in his joy of his goodness and toward us. So the goodness of God to me is like a bubbling brook that flows through heaven. It's a uh, it's, uh, mountain-shaking laughter when God finds something humorous. It's, it's this oceans and oceans of shoreless, measureless expression of kindness, goodness toward us. Let me put this statement on the screen. I want you to, want you to feel it. It's not the goodness of God that separates me from him, but rather my sin. Understand this maybe once and hopefully for all. <clears throat> The reason that your relationship with God is strained is not because God withdraws from you. Because he loves you and he has goodness toward you, intends good things toward you. Always what separates us from God is our choice to rebel against his best plan and to sin. So it's the goodness of God that actually extends loving fatherly arms toward us all the time so hang on to that Luke eleven thirteen says if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask if you then being evil you okay with the verse so far know how to give good things to your children how much more will the heavenly father give good the Holy Spirit to those who ask and so we see the goodness of God, his intention of good. Romans 12, 2 comes on the heels of the first verse, which says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, so the will of a good God for you and me is good. Too many believe the will of God is like, some kind of bad medicine. It's bitter. It's a tough pill to swallow. You know, okay, I've got to do what God asked me to do. This is going to be miserable. And, I, and, and while the will of God is oftentimes challenging and difficult and rarely the easiest course, it always has it about it good. God's will is good for you. And no matter what the circumstances are, we know that God will produce good out of it. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Is a global pandemic on the surface of it good? Nothing good. Nothing good on the surface. Nothing good in the immediate. Nothing good. It's, it's, uh, it's everything challenging and unsavory all the way along the continuum from, from horrible disease and death all the way to the the nuisance of it the inconvenience of it the 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 psychological burden of it i mean you can't see good and yet we know that god is at work producing good even in the midst of it. what about the civil unrest we're experiencing in these days 
and the racial tension and the racial issues that all of us are now pausing to look at more closely, as we should. This is an opportunity, isn't it? Is there anything good about the death of George Floyd? I mean, that's, that's as horrible as it gets. It's, it's almost incomprehensible. And yet, in the midst of it, we can see good if we will use it as an opportunity to stand in a unified way to reconsider the way we relate to one another in our culture. We can do better. We have to do better. And so we can see the opportunity in it. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So at the very essence of God, hear me now, is goodness. That's the essence of it. In creation, God saw all that he had created, and he said what? Five days, he said, that's good. Good, 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 good. Land, water, trees, air, good. Birds, other other creatures of the earth, good, good. Then he, then he creates Adam and Eve. <laughs> what's, he say, what's he say about Adam and Eve? <laughs> very good. Everything else is good. This is very good. Now, why does he de declare Adam and Eve and their creation as very good? It's because we have been created in the image and likeness of God. It is goodness after goodness. So God saw not only in Adam and Eve good, but he, because he created all of us in his image, he said, very good, very good. John 10, 11, here Jesus is called the good shepherd. So why make this fundamental point? Why jump around on this subject for a moment to remind ourselves that God is good? And the reason is because there are so many people from so many other religious strains in our world who do not comprehend the intrinsic goodness of God. We may take this for granted, especially in Christian culture and people who pursue a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview, we may just assume that this is, this is normative for everyone to see God in this way, but it's not. For example, in Islam, the Allah of Muhammad is considered by the Muslim to be greater than the God of Jesus Christ. Now why? Because the Christian God is limited. Follow this. He can only be good. But Allah is capable of doing both good and evil. Allah can do anything he wants to accomplish his will. If it's a good thing, he can do that. If it's, uh, if it's an evil thing, he can do that in order to accomplish his will. Hinduism, for example, some Hindu gods, and there are thousands of hin Hindu gods in the pantheon of gods in the religion of Hinduism, and some of these gods are... are nondescript and seemingly harmless, but there are other gods, big, strong gods in the Hindu pantheon who are very corrupt. For example, there's a god called Kali, and he is murderous. He is a demon-wretched god that Hindus believe in. So the Hindu does not comprehend a fundamentally good god. In most, uh, in most religions of the world, God is just a great big human being with all the attendant foibles and failures and flaws, only a million times stronger. Not the Christian God. 
You see, our God is bound by the limitations of his own nature. Think about this. The Christian God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who said, my will is good, my law is good, my word is good, my way is good, my thoughts are good, my dreams are good, my actions are good, my creation is good. And when he looked at humanity, he said, look, that is very good. Our God cannot be bad because he is essentially good. It's a good God. Goodness sakes, goodness gracious, we have a good God. Let me put this statement on the screen. Therefore, the fruit of the spirit of goodness is that which springs from the vine, God himself. God himself because he's good. Think about it this way. If you take one of the O's out of the word goodness, it becomes godness. God is good. God is good. If you don't hear your pastor say anything else today, Remember, God is good, and he is good toward you. Praise God. Now, there are counterfeits to goodness in the world. And again, we've rehearsed these in, with the other fruit. Let's talk about counterfeits of goodness. Number one is self-righteousness or some kind of works-oriented goodness. This is to dress up my life in all the, the, the good garments, religious garments, my vocabulary, my style, my culture, without real, authentic, inward goodness. The person who, who uh, is a legalist, who establishes all kinds of rules and regulations and unrealistic expectations, is often a person who's filled with all kinds of self-doubt and questions about their own goodness. Yeah, and many times you find corruption in people who insist on following the rules. Uh, the, 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 the people who who become what we might term a false teacher or false prophets. And you can, you can look through history and see history littered with these kinds of persons. And one of the observations you can make about such persons is they become bitter over time at the point of their own self-righteousness, their own sense of I'm right about everything all the time. So many begin with an authentic gift and an authentic sense of call, but become more and more embittered by their own outward observance of the laws that they oftentimes establish for themselves and others. And, and so it becomes, it becomes a very small circle in which to stand. We must not become consumed by the outward appearance of our own self-righteousness. You know, look at me. I'm following the rules. I'm better than everybody. I'm a good, I'm a good boy. I'm a good girl. I must be special. Uh-uh, don't do that. See, the Pharisees become the ultimate example of this. The Pharisees lived at the same time that Jesus of Nazareth was walking on the earth. Those of us who are of the Christian faith today, one of the things we long to do that, that we suspect is going to be one of the most amazing moments of our lives is the moment that we stand and we see Jesus face to face. <laughs> I mean, we're going to, you know, this, one of these days, we're going to, our faith is going to be sight. We will see him. We will talk to him. We will engage with Jesus. Now, these boys were alive at the same time Jesus was on the earth. They saw him. They heard him. This is the most remarkable moment in all of human history. Jesus is walking on the earth. You can you can see him, you can hear him, you can experience a relationship with him in the flesh. It's an amazing moment of history. 
And, and the, the Pharisees, out of their own demonic preoccupation, listen, with their own outward self-righteousness, missed the whole thing. Missed the whole thing. Jesus was exasperated by it. He said, listen, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. This is what Jesus said about them. He said, on the outside, you're all cleaned up, all prettied up. You know, you follow the rules. You're, you know, you're always buttoned up. Everything's, everything's tidy when, they, when people look at you and listen to you. But on the inside of you, the real you, you're, you're just like the tomb. Whitewashed on the outside and rotten on the inside. Wow. Jesus called people right, rotten? Yeah, people who are self-righteous. They got on that list. Wow. So that's a counterfeit of authentic goodness, this self-righteousness. Then there's another thing, a second thing, a counterfeit goodness of the world. The world says we're not into all this religious hypocrisy. We're into, we're into spirituality in our world today, but not that religious thing because, you know, it's just so, so easy to become a hypocrite. Therefore, the world defines goodness as nice, friendly, pleasant, accommodating, cordial, um, inclusive, all-embracing of every idea, every lifestyle, every, every expression, uh, and, and all of that while at the same time having a deadly rebellion against God. Let me illustrate. The mother of Frank and Jesse James. Some of you remember the names Frank and Jesse James. These, these were outlaws in the American West. They were gunslingers. They were murderers. They robbed banks, robbed trains. Both of them came to a violent death. And their mother just thought they were great. By the way, they were both sons of a Baptist preacher. And Frank and Jesse James's mother said about them, they're good boys. They just like to play with guns. Wow. She was happy to accept their outward goodness. She bought into that because they were good to their mother. They, you know, they'd rob a bank and then buy her something nice, bring it home. She liked gifts. One of her love languages, I guess. <laughs> what is going on there? You know, maybe love is blind when it comes to a mother, but... Have we lost the ability to discern what really is good and what isn't? I wonder. Referring to a movie starlet, she is such a good person. Why? Because she's beautiful? What if, she, what if when she gets old and she's not beautiful anymore, does that make her bad? What, is she good because she's a compelling actress? What, what, what if she loses her physical capacity? What if she loses her voice or her hands? I wonder if we've gotten to the place that we can't tell the difference between a person who does good things on occasion and a person who is really good. And if we can't tell the difference, God forbid. God forbid. So there are folks masquerading as good, and we have to wonder. So how do we detect this? Here's the third point I want to make. Detecting a lack of goodness. Here's the first way. A clear sign of the breakdown of goodness is when you find authentic goodness mocked. Anything in America is now funny by the weight of its own humor. Now, 
listen, I, I like to laugh. I like a good joke. I like to think that, that I have a good sense of humor. It's, uh, my sense of humor is a bit dry. There are some times that, that I'm exploding on the inside and people aren't sure even what I'm thinking. <laughs> but I, but I, I, love, I love a good joke. I love to tell a good joke. I, so I, I, hope, I hope you appreciate that. But a clear sign of the breakdown of goodness is when we start mocking authentic goodness. And so anything in America now becomes funny just because it's perceived as funny. Now, I know it was dirty or evil or wicked or irreverent or racially motivated, and it hurt the heart of God, but it was funny. And so we we go ahead and laugh. Jokes that hurt people because of the ethnicity or a person's weight or because of someone's shape, those aren't funny. Jokes Jokes about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, those aren't funny. Let me tell you the jokes that are the least funny of all jokes, jokes about hell. That's not funny. People tell them all the time. It's not funny at all. One of the actors from Saturday Night Live was asked, what do you think has been the success of Saturday Night Live? And he said, without hesitation, he said, it's because absolutely nothing is sacred. Really? Nothing sacred anymore. Hmm. What is becoming of us? We're, we are not only not good ourselves, but we despise those who are. And so mockery toward things that are essentially good is evidence of the lack of it in our culture. Another is the inability to be genuine in compassion and sacrificial in help. This is, a, this is a way to detect the lack of goodness in your own life. Jesus told the story about the good Samaritan. You remember the story? This is a man who, who fell along the road and was, was wounded, fell among thieves, and so he was, he was beaten and robbed. And men came by who had outward goodness. There was a rich guy came by, he didn't help. There was a, a clergy person came by, you know, you would think, uh, you know, a person of the cloth, a cleric would stop. He didn't stop, as Jesus told the story. And so we asked the question, who stopped? Well, it was the one who appeared to have the least, a Samaritan, who by those contemporary standards was a half-breed, a reprobate, according to the cultural mores. Uh, the Samaritans were considered a polluted race. And what does Jesus call the Samaritan? Calls him good. The good Samaritan. Now, th- there's someone who expressed genuine compassion and was sacrificial in help. He not only helped the man in a compassionate way, but he, but he said here, to, to the place he left, the, the attendant there, here's some money to take care of me, and on my return trip, if there's any more expense, I will pay for that. It's good. Samaritan. Yeah, that's, that's just a powerful illustration. So you need to ask yourself, do I have the ability to be genuine in my compassion, sacrificial in my hope of others? Then a third thing is contradictory gaps in my life. I can be good for a little while. I can be good for a week. 
In some categories, I'd be good for a month. <laughs> but then I fail. And so here's what happens in our world today. Disillusionment, bitterness results when people look at us in the body of Christ and they see inconsistencies. Here's, what, here's what's going on in our world and has been going on in our, in our contemporary culture. People look at Christians who have a confession, have a practice of church attendance and, and, and being connected that way, and they, they watch our lives. And the contradictory, hypocritical difference between what we say we believe and how we live is the crevice into which modern Americans have fallen. People are watching us. Husbands are watching wives. Wives are watching husbands who have a Christian testimony. Children, friends, acquaintances, business associations, they are all watching. One of the, one of the reasons that parenting has been, become such a challenge is this differentiation, this gap created by what a parent says is appropriate behavior and the way they actually live their own lives and the expectations they put on their children. The Bible says that you shouldn't provoke your children to anger, but that's exactly what happens when you say one thing and live another way in front of your children. Parents have wrongly concluded that what I say is what my children will learn, what they will become, and that's just not true. Who you are intrinsically is who your children will become. That's how that works. So what this actually means is to produce the unreasonable wrath of your children of the false role model that you produce in your own life. It's a contradictory gap. And a close association with this, number four, is, is teaching falseness and hypocrisy. The world around us is making up its mind about Jesus. Our sloppy lives produce a character assassination of Jesus. People are making up their minds by watching you at work, watching you in your high school, by the way you treat your employees. They're watching. They want to know if, you're, if you're, your life measures up with what you say. This is kind of old-fashioned, isn't it? You don't hear this kind of preaching much anymore, do you? It's interesting. Well, let's just... Uh, come to a conclusion now the last point number four let's talk about the fruit of goodness how do you know if a real goodness is present in your life number one you will find usefulness we're living in a culture that has saturated itself in selfishness and self-interest but the kingdom of god is about usefulness it's about coming to the end of my life and feeling that god uh, used to bless someone, that I can be used to, to strengthen someone, to, to help someone find a meaningful faith in Christ and, and help someone to grow in their faith, that God actually has meaningful usefulness in my life. Now listen to me, especially young people. Could you tune, tune back in for a second? All over the world today, literally all over the world, mostly young people, Young generations of people are taking to the streets. We see it in Hong Kong, for example. Protesting an oppressive communist Chinese government. And they want to be politically free. So they take to the streets. They demonstrate. They protest. Before the pandemic, we, we saw... Many cities of the world, young people marching in the streets around climate change. Of course, in America now, every city in America of any notable size have people 
right now on the streets, protesting, demonstrating for a cause. And there are lots of people taking up lots of different causes, noble causes, good causes, honorable causes here and there around the world. Let me make this appeal to young people. And let me make this appeal to the church at large. Any Christian person who might consider a different kind of worldview about the way you're going to spend your life. Because I want to submit to you today that there is a cause in my mind, in my view, supersedes all the other causes. There, there, there is a cause that will outlive you and outlast you and whatever other cause that you want to stand for. It will have benefits if you take it up in the course of your life that will reverberate for all eternity. And the only time you can give your whole life to this particular cause is when you're young. And the cause that I'm referring to is the cause of Christ. The greatest cause on earth and in all of history and that which will show benefits for all eternity is the cause of Christ. Can I make this appeal to young people within the sound of my voice? Take up the cross. Lift high the banner of Jesus because his life represents the gospel which is the glorious good news of a rescue mission that God took upon himself by sending his only son to the earth to live a sinless life, a perfect life, and then offering himself as the sacrifice, the only sufficient sacrifice for our rebellion, our stubbornness, our sin. And once and for all satisfied the penalty of our sins and the estrangement that we all experience because of our own sin from God has now been redeemed. The gap has been closed. The relationship has been restored because of the magnificent work of Jesus Christ. Now you can call that religious fervor. You can call that fanaticism. You can call that uh, getting out of balance. Uh, you can call it being in denial of real issues that are happening right in front of you. And I just push back and say that if Jesus Christ is lifted up, he will draw people unto himself. And the more people who know Jesus will know the goodness of God and the world will become a better place in all the categories you can mention. Take up the cross, lift high his banner, give your life starting when you're, when you're young and live your whole life submitted to the best plan and purpose of God for your life and you will discover usefulness in your life. And a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now when you're in eternity and you look back on your days on the earth, you will be glad that you said yes to Jesus and you decided to serve him. The fruit of goodness is evidenced by a useful life. Goodness is the mainspring of usefulness. You want to be useful? 
Say yes to Jesus, his best plan for your life. Now, here's the second thing. Goodness will make me happy. This is a truth that the world can't comprehend. John Wesley, you know, the father of the Methodist movement, he said people are unhappy because they are unholy. Yeah. The secret to happiness in this world is goodness. We're, we're wrongly led to believe that if, you're, if you engage in sin, that makes you happy. <laughs> but, you know, that only makes you happy for just a little bit, a little while. A good life is a life filled with the peace, the joy, and the happiness of God. Goodness will make you happy. Here's the third thing. It'll help others to be virtuous. When people see genuine righteousness in the life of a believer, they want to get closer to the source of that righteousness. Jesus said, do your good works before others so that they will see those good works and glorify God. It's a great idea. So here's the key to living in God's abundance. Matthew 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So seek first the kingship of Christ over your life. Seek his goodness in your life and God will bring to pass upon your life all that he has dreamed for you. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Yeah. Not everyone hungers and searches for God, seeks for God. But that's my prayer for you. That God will make you hungry, thirsty for good things. So let me ask this last question. Do you have a passion? Do you have a passion for being good? Intrinsically good? Essentially good? Is that true if you're, uh, if you're a teacher? Is good at the center of it? How about a business person? How about a parent? How about a student? Do you have a passion to be good? Can I, what good can I do today? How can I be a good person? How can I allow the fruit of the spirit of goodness to be cultivated in my life so that it finds expression? in the people around me. So that one day, a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, we can stand before Jesus. And whatever good we have done, we can lay at his feet and remind him without his goodness toward us, we would have no hope. Let's pause and pray for just a moment, reminding ourselves of this verse in Luke 11, 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So, Lord, we pray today that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, cultivating us, O oh God, love and joy and peace, patience, goodness. Make us good, O oh God, essentially good so that we might find usefulness, happiness, and virtue in the world. You may be listening to the sound of my voice right now, and you may be thinking, you know, I, I know I'm not good. In fact, I, I know I'm bad. I know I've sinned. I've, I've failed to be a good person. I've made so many mistakes, and I'm confused. I don't... I don't, I don't know what's happening around us, what's happening to me. I'm, 
I'm feeling feelings I've, I've not felt before. I'm confused. I'm disoriented. I don't know what's happening. Well, friend, the first step toward finding peace in your own mind, your own soul, is to take a step toward Jesus, to acknowledge what he has done for you, and to receive his forgiveness, his goodness toward you, and to be healed in your relationship with God. If that's a step you want to take, and by the way, folks have been taking this step every week, online or not, folks are saying yes to Jesus, and I want to encourage you that this is your day. This is your day to say yes to the wonderful gift that God has given to you, the gift of eternal life. So pray this prayer. Just pray, pray it in your heart, or you can pray it out loud. Pray it right after me. Dear gracious God, thank you for being so good, so patient, so kind. I have fallen short. I've missed the mark. It's left me confused, uncertain, afraid. But I believe that Jesus Christ is my hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me, that my sins might be forgiven and I might be free. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I receive you now. I want to make you my friend, my Savior, my Lord. I give my life to you. Now help me from this day forward to understand your will and to walk in your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now if you just prayed that prayer, listen, we want to be helpful to you. Just use your phone and text 123GO, the message 123GO, it's on the screen. And there will be a, a menu of options there that, that you can select from that we'll be in, re, in response to and be able to help you in any way we can, including a step to receive Jesus today or some other need that you might have in your life. Just text the message 123GO to the number 94000. And as you do that, we'll be in contact with you and in prayer for you. God bless you.